0: Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be joined by the always fantastic John Cameron Mitchell to talk all about his Peacock series, Joe versus Carol. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, you, you've you mentioned that in terms of finding the character and finding Joe, that it was actually more about the voice than the mannerisms at first. And it was a lot of listening to him speak and hearing different cadences, the way that his accent would veer in different directions a little bit. Sometimes there's a little more softness to it. And so I was really fascinated in, in how you found the literal voice of him as a character. Because that then builds so many other aspects within him as well.
1: Yeah, there was. A, uh, it was just immersing myself in the videos, and uh, you know, quarantining in Sydney, there was plenty of time to do that. Um, I didn't want to do an imitation or impersonation. Neither Kate McKinnon nor I wanted to do that with our characters. We, I think, in a way, we probably about fifty percent is is bits of them and the 50% is our own interpretation. So you know, he he did change his voice, his accent depending on where he was and who he was talking to. And it, you know, when he was doing his campaign, you know, things, it was he kind of got more country and kind of butched up more and you know, it was like, I'm from Oklahoma too. Even though he's from Kansas, which was different. I, I lived in Kansas too and Oklahoma as well and was born in Texas. So and we're the same age, uh, within about six weeks. So we, so I kind of know the milieu that he comes from. You know, I, though that's not a word he would use.
0: And you actually auditioned for this role as well. Initially putting yeah. yourself on on self tape. Yeah. How extensive did you want to get in terms of of the research? I know that you said that watching the docu series was wasn't as helpful as listening to the podcast, the Wondery podcast that it's based on.
1: It was both. It was yeah. really both. And I didn't have a whole lot of time for the self-tape but i'm pretty i moved a lot as a kid so i'm pretty good with accents and i just accessed some of my youth um and it was the first audition i'd done in 25 years i think um i was in london doing another show and i found the mullet online and you know and did my own makeup and found a costume and had a friend who was a filmmaker actually shoot it so it wasn't the usual stat you know had a moving camera and you know, you had a little bit of a set, and you know, so I was kind of wanted to go all out. Uh, you know, when I when I do something, I, I try to do it right.
0: And I love that you're bringing up the external elements as well and how that was even part of the audition because it is a character where you've really got a lot to lean into in terms of, of the mullet, the hair, you know, the tattoos, the clothes, even the shoes. And so did you find a lot of the physicality in the character really came once you had those external elements or did you want to find aspects of that before as well?
1: It was definitely together. It was all, it was all together. And when you've you know, you got cowboy boots or a gun belt... Or a mullet, you know it does change how you move um and he was also the most interesting tape was one I found of him in the late nineties where he before he'd kind of created the full persona, and he was much more gentle and had a bit of a lisp and was kind of not as outrageous, you know it was before his husband died of AIDS and it was he was very vulnerable, you know, and, and that was a key for the for the earlier scenes, you know, when he was younger for me.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad that you bought that video clip up because I, I did want to talk about that a little bit in terms of, of that softness that you're describing that he had when he was younger before he'd had certain losses like his husband yeah. and how you kind of looked at who he is in the series and kind of where you got from A to B in terms of that still being a part of him. It obviously never goes away, yeah. but it gets buried underneath the surface a little bit more as other aspects of his personality come to the foreground.
1: Yeah, and every actor whether the writing has it or not has to know their backstory has to know what motivates them what haunts them what they see when you know a lot of therapy is I think you're confusing that person with someone else who hurt you you know so imagining those things that did hurt him when he's dealing with Carol when he's dealing with more modern day problems that's that's psychology I mean that's what people do. They just remember the traumas that happened to them and they try to, they react the same way that they decided to survive. You know, and his became aggression eventually. You know, he was just not going to take it anymore and he did have a lot of homophobia and abuse and, you know, sexual and otherwise growing up a a little gay boy and uh, rather than going to the big city or Going into the closet, he decided to do the third way, which was create his own kingdom in the rural area that was all the misfits that he could lord over. I mean, in some ways he felt like he was taking care of them, but there's a, sometimes a thin line between savior and, and cult leader.
0: Yeah. Did you did you see him as a character that had a self-awareness of that in terms of that idea of wanting to be a savior, wanting to take care of these people, building the sanctuary, but that really it was for himself?
1: Yeah, no, he, he was aware that it was a sanctuary for animals as well as people. And after his husband died, who really was the level-headed one who kind of took care more of him, even though he was eventually sick, um, his boyfriends after that tended to be kind of more people who didn't have a lot going on. You know, you know, people who are adrift, you know, and John and Travis and Dylan and others were kind of were younger and and more impressionable and kind of he would help them out, you know, in one way. But also that gives you a sense of power, too. You know, he needed that power. No one's going to hurt you if you're in charge, you know.
0: And you're getting to, to explore that through the relationship dynamic in the series that we see with John and Travis, played by Sam Keeley and Nat yeah. Wolf in the series. And how did that inform the way that you wanted to explore that relationship dynamic with the two of them within this kind of throuple of, of the three of them in terms of where he's coming from, where his emotional motivations lie, but also the things that he really needs from both of them to fulfill elements of himself?
1: Well, I mean, he... You know, a lot of young gay guys, too, because they're not allowed to love for a long time, can get fixated on things that were missing and even eroticize their oppressor, which is why sometimes you see gay guys who are only attracted to straight guys and straight women who are only attracted to gay guys. And You know, there's things that we learn, you know, and, and it, to our detriment sometimes. Uh, the unattainable or something. And in his case... Because of his charisma, he actually did end up with these guys, uh, John and Travis, who were more identified, straight identified, even though they were probably more pansexual. Um, And so there was a kind of triumph in that, too. You know, it's like the ringleader, uh, you know, making everybody gay or, you know, because he needed to. Then Dylan was was gay already. And they they're. There's just report this week that he is divorcing Dylan finally and and marrying somebody in jail, you know. So he doesn't stop, and it, I, that's that part of him I admire is a, a self starter and a you know make things happen kind of guy. It's just that it curdled over into control issues, and then ultimately paranoia and uh, and then attempted murder.
0: I mean, overall, the dynamic that you've had to create with him as a character is so interesting because there are those admirable aspects, like you said, in terms of the confidence, what he's been able to build.
1: Style. Yeah. Yes. You know,
0: he genuinely, you can tell that he genuinely cares about these animals, even yeah. if, you know, there's questionable elements within that. Yeah. And at the same time, you're not excusing actions and you're not excusing certain behaviors as well. And so how did you approach really finding that line? Because it's also a complete moving target for him as a character in every episode.
1: Yeah, it's it's really just getting into his head and what what he wants, what he cares about, what moves him, what hurts him in his mind. Um, it's moment-to-moment moment rather than a big-picture thing, you know, what happens in that scene. And uh, Eitan was very good at finding an empathetic tone that still didn't stint on the, the kind of fun, you know, the campy artificiality of his life which we see in the camera work at times created by Justin Tipping, our director, and it was just a really good mix. You know, it, it the tone... Americans tend to like want one thing when life is much more complicated than comedy or drama or action movie. I feel like British shows are, are more flexible in terms of knowing that there's different possibilities of tone within one piece and uh, satire is inherent in the story as well. And, you know, I, I was reminding Eitan that it kind of reminded me of another queer caper story that involved an attempted murder, which was a, a very English scandal with Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw, which is a British kind of version of this. You know, it's zany and it's, it's, uh, it's heartfelt at the same time, which is a really fun thing to play.
0: And with the showmanship element that you were just mentioning as well, that's obviously the space where there's more footage and more material to be able to look to in terms of research. And so how would you look to that and think about distilling down, Okay, well, I can see the performance in this, but who is he underneath so that you could find those quieter moments?
1: That's where the imagination comes in. And It's like, how are you, you know, how is the showman when they're vulnerable, when they're with their lover alone, when they're with their mom, you know, it, it's, you imagine it, you know, and that that's the fun part. Um, there is one, there's only one video where he's unaware that he's being shot, which is a Jeff Lowe kind of berating him, you know, his horrible partner, Jeff Lowe, who keeps trying to DM me, I'm not responding, um, and, you know, saying, you did a good job. And I'm like, don't co-op me. Uh. But he has this hidden camera where he's kind of attacking Joe for, you know, using the zoo as a, as a bank for his uh, governor run. And so, and it's quite sad, you know, because Joe is quite beaten down at that point, you know, and he's kind of helpless in those scenes. And it's very pathetic.
0: What were the biggest differences that you wanted to bring forth in your performance for those quieter moments, for the moments where he's, you know, alone with John or alone with Travis?
1: It's just to remember that he's human and he isn't in control of his environment. And most people can see that he's a little bit, you know, has a desperate kind of flop sweat about him, too, which, you know, that his he's charming in that way, you know, and he he's desperate to be liked and. You know, even people like Louis Theroux, the famous documentarium, documentarian who's not known for being super cuddly, just kind of spontaneously hugged him in one of his documentaries. And he's like, I just felt that he needed a hug. You know, and uh, sadly, you know, Carol Baskin wasn't really able to ex- exhibit her insecurity at all. So she had a, a kind of seamless facade that people interpreted as nefarious. And uh, Joe was just so transparently desperate to please that he did end up, people ended up sort of more in his camp, you know, after seeing the docu-series, and Carol's the bitch and she killed her husband. and We don't know any of that. I mean, there's a certain amount of misogyny in there, but it's also a woman of her age having gone through the ma- a man's world has to build armor, <clears throat> you know this is the same like Hillary Clinton people are like she 's a bitch was like she had to deal with assholes through her whole life, and she's created a thick skin, and people interpret that as as uh, something you know ominous, which is strange yeah
0: and I mean with the two of them with joe and carol it's it 's almost sad that they weren't fierce friends because yeah, they, they both been. shared such similar interests, mm-hmm. but to your point, they also had a lot of trauma in their past. Yeah. They both had to build up a lot of walls, deal with a lot of things around themselves. And so they could have really had this really special closeness and done a lot. Mm-hmm. And so did you look at it almost as the idea of a tragedy? Like, here's who he could have been as a person. Here's who he wanted to be as a person. But when the narcissism takes over and some of these other elements and and some of the walls that he built up to protect himself kind of really became part of his downfall, that it's more of a tragic element.
1: I agree with everything you're saying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> What were what were some of the, the real commonalities that you found between him and Carol beneath the surface once you started looking deeper at the two of them?
1: Well, because they were both beaten down, you know, her being a woman, his being a gay man, um, by the powers that be, which are generally, you know, white straight guys, and they did not get a lot of love, you know, and had to fight. And then when they've, Created their kingdoms in a way. When someone's beaten down like that, they it's hard for them to let go of the feeling that someone's still trying to get them. You know that's where paranoia comes from. And neither of them seemed to have found a kind of peace. I mean, I think she had a bit more because she had Howard, you know, who was a very calming presence. Joe didn't seem to get much comfort because he was such a control freak, and there was no one they could trust. You know. Even in his memoir, the only people he speaks well of who didn't betray him were John Ranky, his employee, and, and Doc Antle, his colleague. So, but that was a lot of people that he, he felt turned on him, you know? Um, and he was probably right, but then you can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, when you're, when you're being a dick, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he starts out in this bubble to begin with because he's built this sanctuary and this space and this community. And then, like you said, he, he thinks people are turning against him. And as that paranoia seeps in, that bubble becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as he starts to cut people out. And so what was what was the impact that you really felt on him when you were playing him, where it kind of gets to this point where, like you said, he doesn't really have anybody by the end that he can turn to?
1: No, but he, he, all he has left is his self-made image uh, as the Tiger King. And when he, you know, the last image that we see of him in the series is, you know, he's been in jail for a year. His blonde hair's gone and he re-bleaches it and, you know, kind of says, I'm back. You know, and it's like, unfortunately, it's a kind of self-deluded, you know, uh, kind of comfort, cold comfort in a way of like, I'm, You know, I'm believing my press in a way, but he's probably, he is a celebrity in jail and that's all he has, you know, and he keeps trying to do stuff outside the jail, but he's not getting out, you know, so I hope he's okay in there.
0: You know, and, and one of the things is also looking at what his inner dialogue is as a character as well. And you know, kind of going back to his childhood and experiencing a lot of homophobia growing up, there's always that manifestation of that being an inner voice as well and, and yeah. the inner homophobia that you can have yes. for yourself. Did you see that as something that was very prevalent for him and became more so?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of guys of that generation, especially in that part of the country, uh, You know, masculinity is a currency. You know, it's almost similar to, you know, African-American communities in the past where lighter skin was considered more desirable because it was more social currency to be closer to your rulers, so to speak. You know, so the straight-acting gay guy was similar to the light-skinned black folks. You know, it was given the same. But also the... So he he definitely hated his feminine side, for sure, uh, which can lead to a lot of trouble because you start imitating your oppressor and you're like, I'm crazier than any redneck that ever beat me up and goes, you know, he, he kind of goes, takes it to caricature, you know, um, with the guns and the mullet and everything. So, it, and even, you know, when he's when he saw that I was gonna play the role, you know, Uh, tweeted something that said, you know, Mitchell's gonna make me look like a flaming fag, you know, when I'm just a hard-working gay male. And my response was just a painted nails emoji.
0: I mean, when you look at your performance, you can see the nuance that you found within that. You found the moments where you play more into the masculinity that he's trying mm-hmm. to embody, that he's trying to exert as a performance. Yeah. You know, and then you find what that difference is. What were the key moments for you where he felt more comfortable being himself versus when he felt like he really had to put on a show?
1: I think it's when he's with his boyfriends and, you know, just kind of relaxes. I mean, he, he sees himself as a father figure in those worlds, but... When he relaxes, you know, with them and has a good time, it's that things can settle, you know, when he feels that he's and he doesn't seem to have a lot of female friends, at least not in our version of it. So it's always, you know, he's always trying to kind of fit in as the man's man, you know, in a man's world and but also not pretending to be straight, which, you know, I admire his, you know forthrightness about that and he did run for president and governor and said I'm people like me because I I am what I say I am you know like Trump pretends to do and I think Joe was pretending at times too you know he wasn't always being honest when he said I am what I'm saying I am but but there were elements that were definitely forthright and honest and you know I'm broke as shit and I'm Gave a $3 bill, and I got, you know, he's, he saw himself as, a, as a, a kind of truth-talking messiah, you know. But a lot of that was just to get attention. You know, I, I, I'm sure he did have some empathy, uh, and I certainly played it that way, but it can get clouded by the paranoia.
0: And on a different tangent, I did want to talk about the scenes where you're interacting with the animals because mm-hmm. they would have different animals as placeholders for you. Mm-hmm. So cats instead of, of of cubs and hyperallergenic for your allergies. Yes. And then Great Danes instead of giant tigers. Yeah. Did that help to tap into the emotional connection that he's having and to really have a live animal there to play off of?
1: Yeah, it really did. I was glad they that they needed that. You know, um, the, the critics got the version you know, with the uh, Great Danes, which was kind of hard for them to watch sometimes. But I'm glad they also did the CG, you know. It just would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been right. So, yeah, that was great. The whole shoot was really extremely well put together. I'm glad it was in Australia. There was no COVID. There was, you know, the weather was great. The traffic was good. Brisbane area was beautiful, and uh, there was a lot of unusual bird calls that I we had to ruined a lot of takes, but, uh, and there was a lot of eucalyptuses in Oklahoma, but it was a really perfect place to, to shoot and concentrate on the work.
0: And what would you say in reflection were the most challenging aspects of, of finding this performance and finding him as a character with all the intricacies that you had to capture?
1: It really was more about just energy level cuz you know I was in every scene when I was shooting uh, and they were shooting what were called french hours which means 10 hours with no break plus transportation and makeup so it's you know a 12 hour a day which is not bad for american shooting but 12 hours with no break is actually is not good so I did have to uh, put my foot down and say I need 20 minutes a day to meditate at some point you know which they did give me you know and uh, that was the main thing it was just the energy level getting through it Um, but I loved it you know and I love my actor cohorts I loved uh, Kate I only got to do a little with her but I can't wait to do more
0: I mean, it's a really remarkable performance. And I think going back to what you were saying at the beginning, if it had just been a pure impersonation, then it wouldn't have captured that heart and empathy that it has that you really managed to bring to him. And yeah. so I really want to thank you so much for sharing. all Well, thank this. you appreciate so
1: much. It. I appreciate it.